Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Prize-winning literary guests are in today's lineup. Nikki Finney won the National Book Award for Poetry in 2011. She'll talk about her radical libretto, The Battle of and for the Black-Faced Boy. Though Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo has written eight novels, we'll hear why he turned to short stories in 2017. First, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which guarantees and protects women's constitutional right to vote. The Atlanta Women's Chorus is celebrating with She Rises, a special virtual concert on Thursday, July 30th. Dr. Melissa Rossi is the artistic director, and she joins us now via Zoom. Melissa, welcome back to City Lights. Thanks so much, Lois. It's great to be here. Thanks for acknowledging this exciting concert that we're having. First, how have you and the Atlanta Women's Chorus adapted to the new normal since the outbreak of COVID-19? Well, as many arts organizations, it's, it's been a bit of a struggle at times, and we're certainly out of our comfort zone. But in March, when everything shut down, we were actually at the American Choral Directors Association Conference where we had been selected to perform. And we made it to perform, and then they shut the conference down a little early. So we were excited that we were able to do that. But of course, everyone went into quarantine. And then um, we started doing our rehearsals remotely through Zoom and had to cancel this concert, the She Rises concert, that was to be the following weekend. We continued rehearsing, not knowing exactly what was going to take place, how long this would be the situation and uh, continued through May, hoping that maybe in September we would have a concert, but it looks like that's probably not gonna happen either. But we're very excited to try new avenues of virtual concerts and trying to keep our uh, membership engaged and our audience members and our patrons. So, you know, we're making the best of it. Your energy sounds great. 
How do you rehearse virtually? So it's not ideal. Um, as you know, there's latency issues within any of the software. And, and there are some people really working on, I, I understand out in, um, at Stanford University, there's some software that you have to have all the right pieces of equipment in order for it to work, but that you can actually rehearse together from different locations. But for Zoom, which is what we've been having to use, everyone puts their mic on silent and I'll either sing or demonstrate something or play a recording that they sing along with. We do warm-ups and I would lead the warm-ups. The hardest thing for me is that I don't hear them. So it's very hard to get feedback. I sometimes will ask individuals if they're comfortable singing for me and then I can critique them a little bit so the others can hear it. But you know, that's a comfort level thing, which is not something that normally in a rehearsal, I put people on the spot. So that's always worked out ahead of time. <laughs> but you can't hear the chorus in unison? You can't, no, there's no way. Not at the same time, you know, you can hear an individual, but it, with the latency on the, on the internet, you just can't hear everyone all at the same time. It becomes quite a muddy mess. <laughs> so how do you put on a concert? So this concert is going to be partial virtual choir recordings and some videos that are using the recording from our performance at the American Choral Directors Association Conference that was right before everything shut down. So we had a wonderful recording and audio recording, and I contacted the recorders of that, the sound engineer. We got permission from each of the publishers to then use this recording, and we've made videos from that recording, as well as each singer for a few songs have submitted themselves alone singing their part, and then we mix it all together and create the video of the individual singing. It's certainly not the same thing as a choir, but it's about the best we can do these days. I think it sounds very ambitious and I'm eager to hear the results. I love the title of the program, She Rises. Would you tell us about why you chose that? Yeah, I really love the title too. The signature piece that opens the concert is called She Rises. And it just had so many different layers to the meaning. Catherine Dalton wrote this piece and she and I have talked several times about its meaning to her. And it talks about from the perspective of the power of a woman, but also that sacred light and the flame kind of burning. It's very warm and welcoming and powerful. So it's kind of set the tone for this whole concert. Originally in March, we were going to do several of these songs, but also we were going to be premiering a Joan Shemko multi-movement piece called Lifting As We Climb that was entirely in honor of the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. It had a long script that had the words of some of these suffragettes, so powerful and had this lovely alto saxophone solo and percussion, 
But that piece was a little too complicated for us to be able to record virtually and put up onto this concert. So that's going to be have, have to save for another day. But many of the songs are just uplifting. One of them is, And Ain't I a Woman, which the words of Sojourner Truth from her famous speech. Christina Rossetti poem when she wrote that in uh, 1856. Then we have uh, No Thank You John, which is Christina Rossetti's poem. During that time, it was very much still a very suffragette movement kind of, of period. And she really inspires not only women's rights, but human rights in this No Thank You John. It's a little funny, kind of cute but also has a subtle text to it that speaks to women's rights. So then we're also doing some pop numbers uh, that also speak to women's rights. You Don't Own Me, the famous Leslie Gore piece, and Sarah Bareilles' King of Anything, as well as uh, the fun song Sit Still, Look Pretty, which I don't know about you, but that's a little hard for me to do. It's just <laughs> chill and try to look pretty. <laughs> I think you you are adding some irony to that, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, and it, you know, it's going to be a very, even though this is a very serious topic, it's going to be a fun concert. After concert halls reopen, do you think virtual concerts might be something the Atlanta Women's Chorus would incorporate into future performances? You know, I think if you'd asked me that before having to go through all of this, I would have said, oh, I don't think so. But, you know, I feel like our audience is going to uh, broaden because, well, this concert, people can listen to it and watch it everywhere. And we've often had family members and people that were interested in the show that just couldn't get to Atlanta. So I think there is a place for this. I'm not sure exactly how it's going to fit in our future because live and in-person really matters in the arts. But I do think that we have a new appreciation of, of what it does offer. Yes. Finally, what platform will audiences be watching for this concert? So we're going to do it on YouTube. We're doing a YouTube premiere. So it's kind of cool the way they have this set up on YouTube now. You can do a countdown. So once you have the link, you just go into our YouTube page at the Atlanta Women's Chorus and you'll see a countdown in a few days, building up to Thursday's performance at 8 p.m. If you log in right before, you'll see it 
it counting down and it'll give about two minutes of time for people to make sure they get in and then the, the concert will begin. If you come in late, it will start you wherever we are in the stream. But if you come in late and you go, oh gosh, I'd like to see the beginning, you can scrub backwards and watch the beginning and it'll just end a little bit later than, than the stream will. But uh, you can't go forward, but you can go backward. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds very user-friendly. Dr. Melissa Rossi, best of luck to all of you. We look forward to hearing you in the Atlanta Women's Chorus roar in numbers too loud to ignore. Thank you so much, Lois. Melissa Rossi is the director of the Atlanta Women's Chorus. Their July 30th concert, She Rises, will be shown virtually at 8 p.m. More information will be on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Poet Nikki Finney seamlessly blends the personal with the political in her collection Head Off and Split. That artistry earned her a National Book Award in 2011. Ms. Finney joined me in studio a while back, and our interview began with the topic of her radical libretto, The Battle of and for the Blackface Boy. I was asked to write a, a libretto for um, something that was happening at the University of, Ma of Maryland, a few years ago, and we had music, and we were going to have drama and some other things on stage, and so the word libretto kept floating around. And doing the research on what a libretto was and what they needed, I decided, as usual, I was going to go off-key and, <laughs> and not just do what I was asked to do, but do what my soul and my mind and my heart was telling me I should do. And so a radical, it's called a radical libretto because it doesn't, um, uh, it doesn't have all the things a libretto has in it traditionally, and yet uh, it does have some of those things. And it also has a sense of radicalness at its core because of what it's talking about. It's talking about the history of African-American males in America. And so it starts out... Uh, in 1851 and comes forward to present time, present time being two years ago. And so it's very long and historical uh, moments are um, peppered into the writing of this this radical libretto. And actually um, we are talking now um, with a different source about putting this to music. Ah, so, so it, it, I don't mean to say it would be a real libretto. It would be a traditional libretto. It was a libretto. traditional libretto, yes. yes. Um, the battle is stunning. Oh, thank you. In its unflinching description mm. of injustice mm. from a young boy sailing on a slave ship mm. to its gorgeous language, mm. would you read some portions for us? Certainly. This is called At War With Ourselves, The Battle Of and For the Blackface Boy. And it begins with a italicized uh, epigraph, which says, Boys needed to turn swamp and forest into gold. In 1851, 
he is stopped and frisked, then packed down in the ice of iron at the bottom of the Jesus, 16 hours a day on his back for 192 days. He has three square feet of space and 10 vertical inches of air. The catanine tails whips away. The jaws of the speculum oris feed him horse pea mush. By amazing grace, he is alive. Sharks follow the boat, 100 times as many blackface boys thrown over will eventually make the passage. The New World's leading boy is disposable and in great supply. Open wide, blackface boy, open wide. Our brave New World will make great use of you. Once on shore, he is barely breathing. They stand him up in a vat of palm oil. His black face will be oiled, rubbed, and watched for hundreds of years. He leaves behind what privacy is. It is illegal for him to be outside, alone. A pass or a civil war will be required. And it goes on to talk about, it brings you through the 1920s and the 1940s and, and in, on into uh, modern history. But one of the things that I love about poetry and I love about writing about things that I care about very much is the research that goes on. And so in that first passage when I was talking about um, the, the math of it all, the Jesus was the name of a slave ship. Uh, can we be ironic enough? Yes. And 16 hours a day is what uh, African people had to endure um, in the belly of those ships. Um, they were not pretty spaces, to put it mildly. Uh, Ten vertical inches of air was all, once you look at the, the sketches from some of those ships, all you had was ten inches of air above you. Uh, and so I did. I just did some math there, three, three square feet of space. The cat of nine was the name of the whip. Um, the speculum oris was, was the name of the, the thing that actually pushed food into the mouths of enslaved people so that they would not die because they one of the ways of resistance was to not eat. And so the slave, um, uh, the slavers made them eat so that they would hopefully make the passage uh, and then be sold, which was the whole, the, the money was always, and the, and the work was always at the heart of this horrific institution. How painful was it? for you with this research my god well it's you know that's it's painful but it's necessary because one of the one of my um one of the things that i don't understand is why we we don't teach this in our schools and why we don't know this history and i what came from a family i was lucky enough to come from a family that taught me american history with this included and did not take this out because it was uh a part of history that some people didn't want to turn and face. But because I came to it early and because I knew the horrific uh, different kinds of things that went on, I just, you just take a deep breath and you go back into those, um, you go back into that information with the heart and the head that other people need to hear this. Uh, my nieces and nephews need to know this if they're not learning it. The colleagues that I work with who are wonderful and bright and caring and tender need to hear me say this. And because I believe poetry ultimately must push us into a new place. I love the beauty of poetry and, and the power of that beauty. But I'm also, I'm also wanting to talk about the responsibility that I feel as a poet uh, 
to not just um, to not just say the beautiful thing in a beautiful way that makes you sit back. I read that um, several years ago. This short story writer Tony Cade Bambara mm. asked you from Atlanta. In yes, Atlanta. yes, here in Atlanta. What else? Yes, can your words do besides adorn yes now the words in the battle oven for the black faced boy are elegantly chosen but that doesn't render them ornamental no would you talk about that advice you received from oh. the author when oh you were a young parent she she gave writing workshops in her house in atlanta I was here in graduate school. I heard about that she did this, and I said to myself, I have to go. And I walk, I walk, I, she was a, a neighborhood over. I was in southwest Atlanta. She was uh, in northwest Atlanta. And there were, in her f- front room, there were nurses and bus drivers and students and people who loved language who never got a chance to go to a writing workshop. And we were all there working on things we loved to, to say and write. And so one day she just said to me, and it changed my life. She said, you know, you write real pretty. <laughs> I said, well, thank you. And I just was getting really full of myself. Yeah. And she said, but that's not enough. You don't just write to adorn the page. You write to, to move somebody to think about something in a different kind of way. And I went home and people were calling me to say, you know, are you okay? Because she suffered no fools mm. lightly. She gave it to you like she gave it to you. And if you understood that she was doing that out of love, you came back. And if you thought that she was trying to embarrass you or say something, you know, critical that you couldn't use and you didn't come back. Well, I was I was back the next Sunday and I was thinking about what she said the entire week about how I did want my work to move and motivate and and offer more than the prettiness of language. I loved metaphor. I loved adjectives. I was a. A nerd about words, you know. But <laughs> a word I was nerd. I love it. A nerd about words. I don't think I've ever said that in that way. But I wanted also to be a part of the tradition of literature and poetry that offered something to the listener, that put something in their pockets when they left. That tradition of uh, of Walt Whitman, you know, in the Civil War, not just leaning back and, and, and waiting for the war to end or writing about it from afar, but going to the hospital and being present and watching and recording what was actually happening, reporting. I feel somewhat like a reporter sometimes, but not a reporter that you're going to get on the nightly news. I want to do more than just tell you the facts. I want to bring more about the human condition, about humanity, about who we are as people when I, when I write what I write. Poet Nikki Finney. She has a new book that came out in April. It's titled Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry, Poems, and artifacts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Richard Russo is among my favorite writers, and I highly recommend the works of this Pulitzer Prize-winning author for summer reading or any time. It was special for me to have him on City Lights. 
in 2017 when he was in Atlanta promoting his collection of stories titled Trajectory. Because he is renowned for his novels, I asked Richard Russo why he wrote these short stories. Some of these stories go back a good decade. <laughs> I, don't, I don't write them very often. Um, I'm a very expansive novelist. My, my, uh, even with my best intentions to write small books, they generally become large ones. They're like small books that you've dropped in the bathtub. You know? They just get, <laughs> they get bigger and bigger. And so my short stories um, sometimes are outtakes. They will be um, uh, something that was originally in a novel, uh, a character who's in there and, and, um, and somehow or other just doesn't fit. So I, I lop them off and then look for something to some other way to recycle them. Um, and sometimes, as in the case of most of the stories, there are only four stories. They're long and kind of a couple of them are really novella length. Um, sometimes um, they are short stories by virtue of the fact that they are not set in upstate New York mill towns the way most of my novels are. I've entered some other world um, <laughs> for, uh, in terms of setting that, that sets these apart and makes them shorter. Yeah. Well, um, what binds these particular stories together as a collection? There do seem to be some overarching themes. Well, most of the characters um, in, in um, these stories um, have in common the fact that they've reached a point in life where they've begun to look backwards as much as forwards. Um, that started happening to me in my 50s. Um, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, <laughs> Not that long ago. <laughs> um, but that point in your life when you begin to look at the life you've led and compare it to the one that you intended to lead uh, back in your 20s and 30s when you were looking forward and you were imagining a future. And most of us, I think, discover at some point um, that the life that we have ended up leading may not have been the one that that we had in mind and and that's the that's the um the situation that these characters in they're looking at the tra the trajectory of their of the, of their lives actually that that word didn't even occur in any of the stories of this book so we had to my editor and I had to go back and 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 find a find a story to 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 put that word in so that yes. so that so that that thread would be recognized recognizable to readers. I I, I discovered it and and yep. circled it. Um, yep. but it it was clear even without inserting <laughs> the word. I wondered about how writing short stories differs for you in terms of process, specifically in terms of the depth, um, because. Each of these stories is so rich, nothing felt left out, or I didn't feel as a reader like I was yearning for more. What decisions do you have to make about how far to go with the story mm. versus the decisions you make about how to write a more expansive novel? Yeah. You do, as a writer, I think you have to hold the reins a little bit uh, tighter, um, uh, and, um, 
I never worry terribly with a with a novel. I probably should. Um, uh, with every novel, sometimes you know I'll see this huge cast of characters, and and usually about 300, 400 pages into the book, I'll begin to I'll begin to become really, really fearful uh, because I see them going outward and they and they and they're all charging towards the horizon and they disappear <laughs> over the horizon and I think, wait, come back, where where have you gone? I don't know where you are anymore. Um, and so there's that moment of terror. In short stories, that moment of terror comes, I think, more quickly uh, because you realize you don't have forever. And where normally you like to give characters complete free reign when you're working on when you're working on a short story or even a novella, you you do have to be more careful not to allow extraneous details to to kind of take over the story. You can't have quite as much freedom. Give your characters quite as much freedom as you would in a novel. Okay. Well, let's talk about stories in trajectory. Two of the stories are about academics. Mm -hmm. You taught college for several years yourself, and your novel, Straight Man, is about the misadventures, if you will, of an English department chair. Mm -hmm. The first story in trajectory, Horseman, is about a younger academic, Janet, determined to expose a cocky student who's a plagiarist. Janet displays such moral indignation with the student she identifies rightfully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But why might her anger seem out of proportion to the smug student? Yeah. Um, Janet Janet's story was so interesting to me uh, because it's a situation that I myself have been in. God, no teacher wants to no teacher wants to discover that that a, that, a, that a student has 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 cheated. Although in this story, Janet is kind of glad that if someone has to be caught cheating, it's this particular smug kid because <laughs> he's, uh, he's he no he's privileged and he's one of those male students who. Um, can be the bane of a female professor's existence because they behave differently. Some of these privileged uh, male students will behave differently with a female professor than they would with a male one. But the, um, the question that she has to deal with as she, as she tries to decide what to do about this kid who has, who has cheated in her class is that his cheating has opened a psychological door that she has kept shut for a long time and once it begins to open and it has to do with her own work uh, as a graduate student when she was when she was trying to become this professor that she has become it opens the door to her recollections of her own work as a graduate student these memories come flooding back all at once memories that she really does not want to be thinking about that force her to come to terms with with her own uh, career choice, her profession, where she is as a professor now that she has tenure and promotion. Um, has she lived the life that she wanted to? And has she disappointed herself and others? Hmm. Her department chair, Marcus Bellamy, mm -hmm. is an academic superstar. Yep. And Janet herself was one of his graduate students. Mm -hmm. At one point, she ponders what the study of literature is supposed to yield, and her conclusion is that 
Literature is a series of dialogues between writer and reader, reader and teacher. Because your own writing is so intimate in style, I wondered when I read that, if when you taught, was that a guiding principle you passed on to your students? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and as a matter of fact, a number of the stories in this collection allowed me to talk about art and literature uh, in a way that that my upstate New York mill towns perhaps have not. And I love um, looking at um, Janet uh, in this story, Horseman, and um, her relationship to literature, because one of the things that she discovers is that literature can profoundly uh, affect us. It changed my life. Um, it made, when I started studying literature first and then later on writing, um, it changed my life so, so profoundly. Um, and Janet, I think, um, has come to the realization that there is a kind of downside to literature in the sense that while it should be, while it should help us become more empathetic in life, um, literature also has a way of putting up barriers uh, mm -hmm. of instead of making us more empathetic, um, it can actually uh, make us a little bit more cool, a little bit more aloof. And that's the kind of professor that that she's discovered herself to be in my own case it was the study of literature and then later learning to become a writer that has had the exact opposite effect it is it has uh, allowed for empathy and also for that sense that we have um, of of not just becoming better readers, but more empathetic human beings. Uh, Marcus Bellamy at the end explains why the Robert Louis Stevenson poem, Windy Nights, um, uh, that haunts this, this, this story. He explains at the end of it why it is the greatest poem ever written in the English language. And it's because when he recites the words, his father is still alive. And that's the kind of intimate relationship, the best relationship that we have with literature. It is a conversation that takes place between the writer and the reader, sometimes over centuries. Mm. The second story in the collection is voice, and it is also rich with insight to academic life. Its setting is Venice, so rich in metaphor itself. You write about Nate, the English professor protagonist. Strange that a man so desperate to rise from a dark place should travel thousands of miles to a city that's sinking into one. What is the real darkness that Nate is trying to escape? Well, there are, there are two. There's the general one that, like some of the other characters in these stories, that Nate is... is is beginning to fear that he has lived the wrong life. Um, he has just retired uh, from teaching without ever having that, as he puts it, the one really great student that justifies a career. Hmm. Um, and, um, and that sense of failure 
um, uh, that he has as a teacher because he's come to recognize that he hasn't been a gifted teacher um, has been exacerbated by his very last semester teaching when he came across a young woman um, who he thought might just be that special student, the one who justifies an entire career. And so he is so desperate to make a connection with this brilliant student that things have gone uh, things have gone terribly, terribly awry. And he has managed without ever meaning to um, um, to do what he thinks of as as a great harm in this to this young woman's life. Yeah, but when we finally learn about that crucial incident with this student, it's very sad. I yeah. mean, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah. But it doesn't seem to fit the level of self-punishment and humiliation that Nate experiences. Does Venice bring him perspective on that incident? I think so, by the end. Um, and um, Venice is just the perfect place for this story to take place because it, because it, is, it is a labyrinth. Um, um, uh, the streets, as someone once pointed out famously, are full of water. <laughs> <laughs> streets full of water, please advise. And they wind. And, 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 and they wind. It's, it's, it's a labyrinth. And, and um, my wife and I went, have gone to Venice many times. Uh, part of my, an earlier novel of mine, The Bridge of Sighs, is, 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 set in, is set in Venice. And I love that kind of mysterious um, labyrinthine quality. And when I went uh, with my wife um, to Venice most recently, um, I had a brand new cell phone with me. Uh, and and it was misbehaving the entire time that I was there, sending me to places, and it, it, sending me to places that that I didn't want to go, and keeping me from places <laughs> that I that I needed to be at. And um, and so I made the use GPS. Yes, using the, the GPS, <laughs> using the GPS on my cell phone was sending was sending me to the to the wrong the wrong campo every time, and and that became of use to me too in this story, in which this this man who is who is trying to be found in life because he feels lost in order to ultimately gain the perspective that you speak of he has to become even more profoundly lost than he was in the small northeastern town where he had taught for so many years uh, if he's lost there what good could come of going to a place like venice which is designed to be lost in and 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 so he he must become even more lost um, in the labyrinth of Venice, but also of his life uh, and his life's work, uh, he must become even more lost there um, than in, in order to truly find his way, which I think he kind of does by the end. Oh, I, I think that feeling comes yeah. through, but the labyrinthine element indeed is is part of the wonder of the story. There are so many layers, sibling relationships. Speaking of them. labyrinths. <laughs> <laughs> Nate goes on this trip with his brother Julian to yeah. Venice, and Julian is as crass as Nate is sensitive. What is the result of their time spent together on this trip? Um, well, back to the cell phone again. One of the one of the, one of the problems that they have had really since since they were adolescents is that they cannot speak to each other. 
honestly. They cannot talk to each other. And so at this point, both are now, you know, retired. Um, if they're not old men, they're certainly approaching old age. Um, and Nate really wants his brother to be his friend because he doesn't have a lot of them and he, and he knows or he suspects that his, that his brother doesn't either and they, and they should be. They, they, sh- they should have a relationship at this point, but they don't because they kind of never have. They're very different temperamentally. And yet Nate yearns for one last opportunity to have a genuine relationship with his brother and is mystified by the fact that they simply can't talk. And, of course, their cell phones <laughs> refuse to communicate with each other. Each is, each is leaving message, messages for the other, which their cell phones refuse okay. to deliver. <laughs> this is what's so wonderful about talking with an author, because you learn things like that. You know, that element that actually was a source of your inspiration for the part of that story. Um, I remember I was stunned when I read a biography of... Thomas Mann, mm-hmm. um, to read that his luggage was lost when he and his family arrived in Venice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this was the beginning of the 20th century, and um, they didn't have cell phones or right. computers, and they just had to wait a couple hours for their luggage to arrive. Yeah. And during that lengthy wait, he just observed this beautiful-looking beautiful young boy. boy yeah. And the wistfulness of a man looking at this boy. Yeah. Boom! Death in Venice, you yeah. know? And yeah. if it hadn't been for the lost luggage or your cell phone. Or the phone, cell phone, yeah. We wouldn't have this... There does seem to be in voice this parallel between Julian Nate's um, kind of crass brother and the brilliant young girl, Opal Montz, the mm-hmm. student. Um, you're right. Maybe Julian's gruff manner masks sympathies he's unable to give voice to. Right. And um, Opal's writing was her voice exactly she, exactly she literally can't speak or yeah uh, has an illness that makes her think she can't speak but she wasn't voiceless after all regarding julian it's here in this story that the word trajectory uh, appears and um what is it that Nate finally realizes uh, Julian has been on the right trajectory for his so-called career in sales? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Julian. Um, Julian has sold. Um, um, some people in the story uh, remark that Julian has sold just about everything that can be sold, and. And Nate, on the other hand, <laughs> has come to the conclusion that Julian has really only ever sold one thing, and that's Julian. <laughs> so, and 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 of course, Nate is the exact opposite because he um, um, has never succeed in, succeeded in selling himself, um, uh, selling himself as a teacher, selling himself as a potential husband, uh, as a potential lover. Uh, he simply lacks he lacks Julian's self confidence. But in a sense, he also lacks 
a voice, that the courage, the courage to raise a voice. And just about everybody in this story is searching, is searching for that, uh, including, um, in, including uh, going back to um, kind of, kind of um, Renaissance Venice, all of those children of, of Venetian prostitutes who have been deformed through venereal disease and who send their beautiful voices, um, you know, um, up to the top of the cathedrals in, in Venice, but who have to stand behind these, they mm. have to stand behind these screens because they have become so hideously deformed that, 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 that churchgoers don't want to have to look at them. It's just a horrible metaphor, isn't it, for, for um, what part of ourselves do we, can we reveal um, um, to others and what allows us the courage to, um, to, 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 to raise those voices or just simply to present, to present ourselves honestly to the world. Against the backdrop of this visually sumptuous yes, city. Yes, with all of this beauty. Yeah. Milton and Marcus is the last story in the collection. I think if I had to identify a favorite, it would be this one. The main character is a writer from Vermont who is invited to meet with some Hollywood big shots to write a screenplay. Okay, you are a writer from Maine who has written screenplays. Few of the movies starred Paul Newman, and there's a character in the story named Wendy who sounds a whole lot like Paul Newman and another Bill who seems to fit the description of Robert Redford. I realize this is fiction, but does some of your experience working in film inform the story of Milton and Marcus? Oh, of course, of course. Um, I don't work in film as much as I used to when I was when I was younger. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's had a huge impact on my life, particularly um, um, my long friendship with um, the director, Robert Benton, um, who uh, with whom I have worked on several projects, um, two of them two of them with with Paul Newman and then so, Empire Falls and then Empire Falls afterwards which was not Robert which was which another another oh. director Fred Skepsey but also yes um, also uh, Empire Falls was Paul Newman's last um, on-screen role um, and um, boy he stole every scene in it <laughs> I think so every scene that he was in and it was it was um, uh remarkable to have such a uh, such an iconic actor to work with such an iconic actor over three different movie projects and um, to have his late career um, so impacted by my words you know uh, and and so yeah there's there's a Wendy his name is his name is Wendell Pierce in the story and he is a cut above everybody else uh, in the Hollywood business because he is, he has, he has been changed by it so little. And that was also true of Paul, who remained a genuine, I think, a genuine human being. A mensch. Uh, uh, yes, an absolute mensch um, um, throughout his life. And I miss him. He was, one of the, he was one of the first phone calls that I got the day that I won the Pulitzer Prize <sighs> back in 2002. Oh. The, you know, the phone was ringing right off the hook. 
and um, I, I and I you know I was picking it up as I would set it down and then have to pick it up again and and there was Paul's voice what a tribute. saying say <laughs> saying hot shot which which was which was what he called people he liked especially guys men who were younger than he and that was his 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 um uh, and he never said hello he would never say hello he would say this is hi this is paul newman he would say hot shot in that gravelly voice and, and you're right about yep. hot shots throughout hot sh- this story uh, exactly exactly so i made i made use of that and paul's extraordinary generosity to writers his uh, the way he loved um the written word and also um, the fact that when Paul finally, when it became clear that Paul was ill, um, the screenplay sections of this story I wrote because Paul had asked me to write um, something else that seemed just so ill-suited to him oh. that the, the screenplay passages that are part of this story of Milton and Marcus I wrote over a decade ago before I knew that Paul was ill, hoping that it would that it would stir something in him because he was having some problems with memory uh, at that point, and he was saying, "I don't I don't want to work with a teleprompter." And I said, well, part of the reason you're having trouble remembering your lines is that they're not memorable. So, like, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I thought, let's get. I, so I wrote, you know, about 20 pages of a screenplay specifically for Paul in the hopes that that it would jog something in him and. And um, um, and maybe he would get that one last project with his friend Robert Redford that that they had been looking for for so long. Which would you um, read a portion of Milton and Marcus from page two thirty seven? I yeah. think it certainly has echoes of Paul. Yeah. Like all great actors. Wendy had a shrewd understanding of human nature. And he probably figured that if he presented me with a problem, I would try to solve it. He also knew that I was both grateful to him and fond of him. If he was playing me, I didn't mind. I was a writer, after all, and as such, I possessed some of the same basic skill sets as actors. An insight into what makes people tick, that and a certain cynical understanding that what makes them tick generally isn't what makes them good or even interesting. If actors are famously narcissistic, narcissistic, writers run a close second, and they generally have far less justification. (laughs) That feels like an elegy to Paul Newman. Did you mean for it? Yeah, sure. Sure, sure. He was... I love the passage also in this story. Films belong to producers for a time, then to directors, and in the end to stars. You, the writer, forget the yearly Oscar speeches given by actors. Writers are hirelings. So are all those stereotypes about the studio big shots valid? Oh, I think pretty much. It's a nasty now, you know, I have business. To say, I, and I have to say um, that I have probably um, far less reason for cynicism about about the business than just about any other writer because I've been so well treated and I've and I've worked with so many 
um, uh, of the of the great you know um, um, actors of our time. I mean, I've with with Paul Newman, of course, and and Philip Seymour Hoffman from uh, from Nobody's Fool. Um, and then with Empire Falls, my God, Ed Harris was so breathtakingly good as as Miles Roby in, in that, and and that was a star-studded cast. Wow, that, that I, mean, I don't think we could we could do again. And I've worked with Harold Ramis on a movie, and with Benton on two movies, and Fred Skepsi on Empire Falls, and and some other great people. So I've just been so incredibly fortunate. Um, to to work with with great directors, great actors throughout throughout my career, um, and yet, <laughs> and yet, um, despite my good fortune, um, I also have had access to to um, uh, an understanding of of the fact that not everybody in this in in that business is anything like some of the some of the best people that I've worked with and there's a lot of uh chicanery out there oh, and narcissism straight out of central <laughs> casting Richard Russo thank you very much for joining us I hope as you look back you are exactly where you hoped you would be in the early part of your career because so many readers are grateful thank you so much Author Richard Russo joined me in 2017 to discuss his collection of short stories, Trajectory. Richard Russo is the author of eight novels, most recently, Everybody's Fool and That Old Cape Magic. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. to hear about Articulate Atlanta, an annual urban art social. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzis. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. 
Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.